0: Greetings this morning, in the name of our Lord and our reigning King, Jesus Christ. Greetings. Our call to worship today is going to be the 72nd Psalm. Hear God's word now of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. When you hear this psalm, hear the promises of victory of what God is going to do in the earth. And crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the moan grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth, may the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the Son of Jesse, are ended. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our Lord and our God. We thank you for calling us to be your people. We are the ecclesia, the called out ones. You have called us out of the power of darkness and have translated us into the kingdom of your dear son in whom we have found redemption. We have found forgiveness of our sins. Oh, it should fill us with joy, Father. And so we come to you today as joyful children, grateful, overflowing with thanks to you for what you have done for us in your son Jesus Christ for the work that your Holy Spirit is doing now among us and in the world to allow us to fulfill the great commission that Jesus gave to us to not only disciple the nations to teach them all that you've commanded we thank you for the invitation Lord we accept your invitation only by your grace do we come We pray for those who would rather starve than come, that they too, Lord, might be brought in. We ask your blessing now on our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Please remain standing as I read my short text for today's sermon. It's from the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Hear God's word. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises you have given us. I pray that you would speak through me, that the people of Foundation Church would hear not my voice only, but the voice of the living God today, as I try to rightly divide your word and bring it to bear in our lives. I pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's human nature that we all like to know what's going to happen in the future. The past is the past. That's written and recorded, and we have eyewitnesses. We're all living in the present, but the future is unknown, and so there's a part of us with our limited, finite minds. We like to know what's going to happen, right? This is why people flock off to the palm readers and the soothsayers and People that claim to have all these powers, which they don't, but we all like to know what's going to happen in the future. This is why Pastor Mark and I have been laboring to think about and plan for the trajectory of our church. You've heard that word a lot lately. Where is our church going? You're all members of Foundation Church, so you should have a great desire to know this. Uh, My children, if they're going to be a part of this church 10 and 20 years from now, if my grandchildren are going to be raising children in this church, where is the church going? We all want to know that, don't we? I would argue that perhaps even more importantly, because we're all members of the church of Jesus Christ, we should want to know where is the church of Jesus Christ going? What is the future of the church? I don't mean someday in heaven. We all know eventually the, the church will be consummated. Christ will take his bride. And we all live happily ever after, if you will, with the Lord. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the future of the church on earth. Don't you want to know if you're on the right side of this battle that's being fought? Do we win? Does the church win or does the church go into steady decline until Jesus finally comes and says, enough of this disaster, I'm going to bring the church out of this mess and take it home? I think we all want to know this and I want to try to look into God's Word and answer that question today. When I was a boy, I used to watch a lot of television. True Confessions. um, And back then, things were different. Um, Back then, there were only like five channels. Now there's thousands of channels you can choose when you watch stuff on TV. But my favorite show was a show called The Brady Bunch. How many have ever watched an episode of The Brady Bunch? Okay. So here you have a family with three boys and three girls. Relatively small family, but that was how things went back then. So um, every night after dinner, my brother and my sisters and I would park in front of the TV and watch the Brady Bunch. The show got so popular that they, re- they recorded hundreds of episodes. And then by the time I was a teenager, they were in reruns. Now, what if you don't know what a rerun is, children, that means they recorded it years ago, but they're showing the same episode over and over again because so many people liked it. And so we would always wonder, is tonight the one where... Marsha gets hit in the nose with the football when she's trying to impress the boy and her nose swells up. Is it that one? Or is it the episode of Bobby hanging from the monkey bars trying to stretch himself because he's too short and he doesn't like being a shrimpo? Or is it the one where the Bradys go to Hawaii? You all remember these, don't you? Also, if you know the Brady Bunch, the the beginning of every episode is exactly the same. The first five seconds is a, a shot of this home, the front of the home. And it's a real home. It's in Southern California. They actually just sold it. They keep selling every 10 years for like a million dollars because people want to own the Brady home. So it's still there, but there's a shot of the home and the music. Da-da-da-da. Da-da-da-da-da. Right? So five seconds of that, and then it would go into the first scene, and you'd say, oh, this is the one where such-and-such happens. But it was kind of like suspense. That first five seconds, which episode is it going to be? Well, one day, I'm at... The grocery store with my mom. How many? How many of you children ever go to the grocery store with your mom? Okay. You know when you get to the end, there's all those magazines about with headlines of woman gives birth to her own father and exciting <laughs> things like this. And uh, so I noticed when I was in line that day, there's a little book about this big called the TV Guide. And my mom's unloading groceries, and I thought, oh, I wonder what this is. And I picked. Now remember, there's no internet back then. There's no information like there is now. If you wanted to know something, there were very few sources of information. Well, I fl- started flipping through this book, and I could not believe what my eyes beheld. It said right there, the next week's listings of every show and what was going to be in that episode. Brady Bunch, 5.30, Monday. Marcia gets hit in the nose with the football. Tuesday, Bobby hangs from the monkey, and I thought, this is helpful information because now I can get my brother and my sisters. So I memorize the next week's shows, and then Monday comes. (laughs) After dinner, we're sitting there watching. Here's... And there's the shot of the house. And I said, oh, this is the one where Marcia gets hit in the nose with the football. (laughs) My sisters looked at me like, how can you know that? But sure enough, as the show unfolded, I had named the right episode. And they looked at me like I had magical... powers. (laughs) This is a good thing in the Cusel home. Now I had dominion over my sisters. The next night they're like, do you know which one it's going to be? I said, yeah. I'm not telling, though. But then right before, I said, as soon as the shot comes on, I'll know. So here's the house. And I said, oh, it's the one where Bobby hangs from the monkey bars because he doesn't want to be a shrimpo. Sure enough, I was right again. (laughs) Well, by the time the week was over, I had I had power in the Cusel home, right? Because I had the power to know what was going to happen in the future. How did I have the power? I had the book. I had the book. So the obvious analogy here is God has given us a book to tell us. We are the church. We don't have to wonder. I wonder what's going to happen to the church. None of us have ever lived in the future and we don't have knowledge of such things, but God has revealed to us some, not all, And yes, especially in the book of Revelation, in very figurative, strange language to us. But elsewhere in the Bible, we do have a clear picture of what happens, not only um, at the end time. So I'm talking about eschatology today, the study of the eschaton, the final things, the last days. But not only the last days when it all ends, but what happens between now and then, which is the future as well. If you had looked at me, uh, if you had looked at the church right now and said, Where is the church going? you probably wouldn't have a very optimistic view, would you? You'd see scandals in the church, a weak church, a church that's not impacting the culture by and large, at least in North America. You'd see pastors falling into disgrace. You'd see the gospel being preached falsely. You'd see heresy being taught. And so if you were to look at that snapshot in time, you would say it doesn't look good for the church. And many people have done that and drawn the conclusion the church is just in a downward spiral and it's going to continue to go that way. And I don't mean just mean looking at the last five years. You could look at the last couple hundred years of the church in North America and say this is headed, by and large, in a downward direction, setting aside the Great Awakening, setting aside the homeschooling movement and the Jesus movement and different things that have been positive signs. But by and large, the trend the last couple hundred years has been downhill. But I want to caution us not to look at a little snapshot in time and use that to judge the future. Any of you that saw me last March when I had my kidney stone, Pastor Mark saw me at my worst in the emergency room as he was wiping the vomit from my mouth. Sorry to be graphic, but He saw me at my worst. I was in so much pain. My body, I had lost weight. I was sick. If you had looked at me at that moment and said, is this going to be a healthy man? You probably would have concluded, this man is not going to live much longer. He he is not a healthy person. But that's the danger of looking at a little snapshot in time instead of being able to step back and look at the the long view. So, with that said, we just sang about, in the church's one foundation, a church... By schisms, rent asunder. By heresies, distressed. The church in North America right now, the Western church, is weak. So we're talking about eschatology. I, I want to talk about a couple labels. I've, I've, I was at a Christian conference once, and I heard these two guys meeting each other, these young men. And one of them said something like, hey, how you doing? I'm, uh, I'm Reformed, Halo baptist of Communion, relatively optimistic on Millennial. How about you? Oh, I'm Reformed, Pado-Baptist, pado Communion, somewhat pessimistic. You know, this is the way they introduce themselves. We have these labels that we like to say, I'm, I'm one of these. So you might say, well, I'm post-mill, I'm on-mill. But I would challenge you, if you were to be asked to define what that really means, or better yet, if you were to be asked to define from Scripture, to defend from Scripture, your view of end times and where the church is going, could you do it? Could you open God's Word if you were having a discussion with a person that was relatively knowledgeable, could you defend your position of what you believe about the future of the church? Well, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic about the church, not because I like to be optimistic. Do you young people know what optimistic means? That means I, I think good things are going to happen. I think it's going to go in a good direction. Many people today are pessimistic. I, some people I should call them pessimillennialists. They believe that things are going to go downhill. I'm an optimillennialist. I think that things are going to go in a good direction. But hear me now, I don't believe that because that's what I want to believe. I mean, who doesn't want to be optimistic, right? It sure would be neat if things went well for the church. So I'm going to, I'm just going to believe that. Well, we can't do that. We have to go to God's Word and say what sayeth the Scriptures. So here's what I, want to, what I want to cover today. I'll give you my three-point outline. The outline is this. What does the Bible say about the growth of God's kingdom? That's the first thing I want to talk about. What does the Bible say about the growth of God's kingdom? Number two, what about Satan? Doesn't the Bible say he's the prince of this world? And ought that not to have us believe that our goals are going to be thwarted or what we want to happen might not come to pass? What about Satan? And number three, once we look into God's word... And those two things, what then are our marching orders? What are we to do with this information? I want to take two or three minutes, if I can do this, and give you a really quick timeline of church history from the Bible. And there are good people in the church that believe differently, but I think we have scriptural warrant to to say that what I'm about to say is true. And I know that Pastor Mark believes and teaches the same things that I'm about to say. The simple, really condensed history, uh, timeline of history is that Christ came 2,000 years ago, right? The earth was made roughly 6,000 years ago. Christ came 2,000 years ago, and this was the beginning of the millennium. This term millennium is not in the Bible, but the phrase 1,000 years is. We just heard it read from the book of Revelation, chapter 20. This period of 1,000 years, this millennium, started when Christ came. That was the beginning of the thousand years. Okay, That's when Satan was bound. Let me read, reread what you just heard from Revelation 20, just the first three verses. Listen carefully here. This is, the, this is John speaking of the vision you saw. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. John saw an angel holding a chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. John saw an angel with a chain, and he grabbed the devil and bound him, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him. Listen, so that he, the devil, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So the binding of Satan has already happened. It happened when Christ came. If you don't believe me, here's a passage from Matthew chapter 12. Jesus, uh, so listen, this is verses 28 and 29. Jesus had been accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. You remember that? By the power of Beelzebub. And he said, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And here's what Jesus said next. But, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He just cast out the demons. It's not an if. He's saying, since I just did this, heads up, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It has started. It's here. Or, and then he says, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Who's the strong man here in Jesus' word picture? It's Satan. Jesus says you can't, you can't spoil the man's house until you bind him if he's a strong man. So you, and this is all in one passage. I didn't take it out of context. So putting these two together, what you see is Jesus is saying... The strong man has been bound. I've come. The kingdom of God is now here. And the man that had dominion no longer has dominion. He's been bound. And the kingdom of God is upon you now. This is the beginning of the thousand years. Okay, the thousand years ends when Christ comes to judge the world, when he returns. Revelation 20, a few verses later. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And here's one more from 1 Thessalonians. You just heard fire came down. This fire coming down is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ's return, his second coming that is the end of time. That's the end of human history. 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, When the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. There's that flaming fire again. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now these chains, this is a word picture, okay? The, the chains as a figure of speech. You all know that Satan, the angel did not take Satan and put him in Barney Fife handcuffs and take him to prison, right? Satan is a spiritual creature, and so this is figurative language, but it is telling us that Satan was bound. And if you don't believe that, listen to Jude, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, this is speaking of the angels that rebelled in heaven, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains, God has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness Under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Okay, so this is figurative language, but it's saying all these angels are bound. They're bound. 1 Corinthians 15. This is the end of my little three-minute summary of the, the timeline of church history. For as by a man came death, this is Paul speaking of death and the resurrection, as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then, Paul says, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. That's the end of time. When Christ comes back, it's over. There's no thousand years after that. Paul says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign, listen, for Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's the end of that passage. So we're in this millennium. We're in this period of a thousand years. We're in the church age. By the way, Any of you children, anyone that's listening might be thinking, Elder Cusel, you have made a mistake. Because you just said the thousand years started when? Two thousand years ago. (laughs) And we're still in it. And you go, I think your math is bad. Well, the thousand years, again, is figurative language. Right? If If God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, as the scripture says he does, does he not own the cattle on the thousand and first hill also? Does that belong to someone else? It's figurative language. So if you're watching the clock, yes, we're long past a 1,000 years, but it's figurative. It's saying there's a period of time started when Christ came, and it's going to end when Christ comes back the second time. All right, you need to know all that so we can make sense of some of these other scriptures. What does Jesus expect to happen in the future? I could ask Derek, what do you think is going to happen in the future? Jeff, I could take a poll... Is that how we find out? Or would we rather know what Jesus expects? Jesus expects that all his enemies will be subdued and the nations will be given to him as an inheritance. Psalm 2. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give you the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession." This is not someday at the end of time because there's rebellion and there's crushing of, of oppression to being talked about here. I will give you the heathen for your inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Remember this? We memorized that a couple years ago. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a promise from the Father to the Son. I'm going to make all your enemies your footstool. Sit here at my right hand until that happens. Then comes the end. It's right there in the Scripture. By the way, if God, if the Father says to the Son, Ask of me and I'll give you the heathen for your inheritance. I'll give you the nations. The only thing that will prevent that from happening is if Jesus forgets to ask. Not likely, Right? Okay, if you don't believe the Old Testament, listen to Hebrews chapter ten, verses twelve and thirteen. And I know you believe the Old Testament, but here, Hebrews chapter ten. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Okay, after he died on the cross, made the sacrifice, he ascended to the Father. He sat at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So if someone wants to argue, well, that Psalm stuff, Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 is Old Testament, here's the writer of Hebrews telling us Christ is at the right hand of the Father, and he's going to stay there until all his enemies are a footstool. Here are some Old Testament prophecies about kingdom growth And these must be before He returns. Because the things that are talked about here would make no sense if we're talking about in heaven someday after the end of the world. You heard from Isaiah 11 earlier, uh, verse 9. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. What is the holy mountain in Jerusalem? Mount Zion is talking about the church. And Isaiah says, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord As the waters cover the sea. So how is the knowledge of the Lord going to be dispersed? Is it going to be little puddles here and there? Little here, little there. Man, the world's being taken over by the bad guys, but there are little... No, it says the knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah chapter 9. We read this one every year in Advent. But think about it in light of what I'm saying. This is a prophecy about the Messiah to come. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You say, well, how could that happen? And Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's a part in Daniel chapter 2. I'm giving you a lot of scripture. Because I don't want to offer my opinion and have you go, well, here's what I think. I'm trying to just give you chunks and chunks of Scripture that I think speak clearly to this. When Daniel is interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the, the giant image and what would happen, some of this is about Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, but listen, you'll hear prophecies of the kingdom of God. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Now, listen. But the stone that struck the image, the stone that crushed the image of Nebuchadnezzar, that struck down the heathen idol, the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The stone became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Do you see the picture? And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Not someday in heaven. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation, sure. Daniel just said, I've given you an interpretation. A kingdom's going to come. It's going to last forever. It's never going to be defeated. And it's sure. This interpretation is sure. It comes from God. I read you Matthew 13, Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed. Again, we look now and we go, boy, sometimes a kingdom looks like it's not that big. Jesus said it takes time. It grows slowly. I am not saying that you're going to see a trajectory like this. Better, 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 better. There's going to be huge ups and downs over time. But long term, the gradual progression is upward that the kingdom of God is going to grow, the church is going to grow and be triumphant. We laugh at the prosperity gospel, but there is, a pros- there is a gospel of prosperity, if by prosperity we mean that the church will grow through gospel preaching. Jesus will reverse the curse. We know from Genesis 3 that a curse came on us because of our sin. The curse is going to be reversed. Jesus didn't just come. Pastor Mark has preached to us about this. When he came, if you ask the average Christian, why did Christ come? It would say to save, save sinners. Absolutely. Praise God that he did that. That's wonderful beyond words. But he came to do a lot more. He came to usher in a kingdom. A kingdom that is now here. The kingdom of God is upon you. It's here right now. We're living in the millennium. And he came to bring in a kingdom that is going to be victorious. Christ didn't come, do some work, and say... It's mostly finished. I'll come back and clean this up later. He said, it is finished. I am victorious. The kingdom of God is at hand. So listen. Remember at Christmas we sing the Isaac Watts hymn? He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Where is the curse found? Everywhere. Jesus came, So that his, that's not scripture, but he came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Amen. There's a lot more scriptures I could give you. But in the interest of time, you see the pattern there. That there are we have a reason to believe from God's word. This kingdom's going to grow. It's not going to be stopped on earth. On earth. So number two, what about Satan? Isn't he the prince of this world? The Bible says that. But what does it mean? I think we misinterpret it. What it means is that Satan is the leader, the captain of the unbelievers. When we say of this world... It does not mean Satan is the leader of all the earth, that he's in control of the whole earth. Sometimes as a pessimillennialist, we hear that. He's the prince of this world. And we go, well, yeah, God's a prince up there, but Satan's the prince down here. That's not what the scripture is saying, I'm convinced. Let me give you a few scriptures and listen to the the verbiage here, and you'll hear. It's not just one, there are many. Galatians 1.4. Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. You keep hearing Satan is the god of this age. He's the prince of this world. So it said, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Did we get taken out of the evil age and taken somewhere else? No, we're still here, but he took us out of that part of the world that is anti-Christ. Romans 12, we're not to be fashioned or conformed according to this age. 1 Corinthians 2.6 Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. You see the distinction that the writers of the New Testament are making between us as God's people and the world. This age. Ephesians 2. Verses 1 and 2 You once walked according to the course of this world. You once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You once walked as one of Satan's children. But not anymore. You're not part of the world anymore. In 1 John chapter 3, John contrasts the children of the devil with the children of God. And then in chapter 5, he says this. I'm trying to make a point here. He says, we are of God and the whole world lies in the evil one. The whole world lies in the evil one. So does everybody lie in the evil one? No. We don't lie in the evil one. He's making a contrast, a distinction. We are of God and the whole world, the followers of Satan, they lie in the evil one. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. That's talking about Satan. The God of this world. But you see, he's obviously not talking about the God who rules over all the world. Here are some scriptures about God's authority over Satan, in case you weren't convinced yet. Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples. We sing the song. All peoples, clap your hands for joy. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He's a great king over all the earth, not just over heaven. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. Jehovah, not Satan, is the ruler of this world. I read uh, Psalm 72 is the call to worship. It speaks of the reign of God and the reign of God's righteous king during this age. And his enemies shall lick the dust. Remember I read that? I like this phrase. When you're licking the dust, what does this mean when you're licking the dust? Picture someone who's down on the ground, face down, with their tongue out, licking the dust. Why would you do that? Because someone's got control over you. They've got their boot on your neck. Otherwise, I don't think anybody would lick the dust. It's a graphic picture of you have been subdued. You have been defeated. Ever wonder why in the movies they get the bad guy and they got him right there and they go, step on him, but they don't do it. They let him go. They've proven they can conquer him, but for a little while they're going to let him go. And the bad guy usually ends up getting in trouble again pretty soon anyway. God said, Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years. And then for a little while he's going to be allowed to do stuff until the very end. Okay, so lick the dust. Psalm uh, Genesis 3.14 reminds us that remember the very first time in the Bible when you heard someone's going to lick the dust? The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. He's conquered. Now this is a Prophecy is something that was to come. When did it come? When Christ came the first time, rose from the dead, conquered the grave. That's when he conquered Satan and bound him. Micah chapter 7, verse 16. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like the serpent. See the picture? All the prophets telling us the nations, not someday in heaven, the nations right now are going to lick the dust because they've been conquered and subdued. 1 John 3.8, the Son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. And we memorized this one, I hope you did, Colossians 2.15, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a, a show of them openly Triumphing thing over them in it christ has conquered satan you remember a couple years ago we memorized luke chapter 10 when jesus sent out the 70 two and two before his face and every city and place remember that one he sent out the 70 to go do the work of the kingdom verse 9 jesus told them say unto the people when you're preaching to them tell them the kingdom of god has come nigh upon you sounds familiar And then in verse 17, it says, And the 70 returned again with joy. They went out and did their work, and they came back. And what was their report? Do you remember? They said with joy, Lord, even the devils are subject to us in thy name. These powerful demons that had ruled the world before Christ came. Do you know that before Christ came, the world, the nations, worshipped demonic gods? They actually did. Do you know that since Christ came, that they've been, Satan's power to deceive the nations has been taken away from him. So they came back and they couldn't believe it. The devils are subject to us. Something has changed here. And Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall. This is Jesus speaking. I saw Satan fall. He told them, Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Are you getting the picture of this? This is incredibly optimistic, victorious language. For here and now, Romans 16, God will bruise Satan's head under your feet shortly. James tells us, oh, this is a great one, resist the devil and he will... Flee from you. Peter, you got power. If the devil is tempting you, James says if you resist him, he has to flee from you. God has given us a promise. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. First John four four, greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. All right, so Revelation twenty, Satan bound for a thousand years. We reign with Christ right now during this time. Now hear me. I'm not saying, Satan, you say, well, Elder Cusel, Satan seems like he's still doing some stuff. He is. He's active. He's roaming about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. I'm not saying Satan isn't active. I'm not saying he doesn't still have some power. Christ has allowed that. But he is in chains and his power has been subdued. He was changed so that he might no longer deceive the nations. That means... That the way the kingdom is going to grow is not military might. It's by the preaching of the gospel. Since the time of Christ and his resurrection, we have promises that as we preach the gospel, that is going to Christianize the world. Yes, we're in a battle. Yes, there's going to be casualties. We celebrate uh, Veterans Day tomorrow. And I I thank the Lord for the men and women that gave their lives in service of our country and who have served us and those that are still living. We ought to all be thankful for the work that they've done. You know, in World War II, the good guys won World War II, right? But did anyone die in World War II? Were there casualties? Was there tragedy? Did children lose their fathers? Did wives lose their husbands? Yes. So I'm not saying it's all going to be good. Nothing bad's going to happen. That's not at all what the Bible says. It just says Satan has been chained, that he might deceive the nations no longer. In other words, the gospel can go do its work now. When Christ gave us the great commission, he said, "Go out and baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to obey all I have commanded you." He gave us that commission knowing that it can be done now. That can be accomplished because Satan has been chained. All right. Finally, the third and final point is how will these advances in the kingdom come? When there's work to be done around my house, sometimes I say, who's going to do this? Chore. And you know what everyone says? Someone. That's an easy answer. Someone's going to do that. So this is where the rubber meets the road, brothers and sisters. Pastor Mark is always talking about kingdom work. We've got kingdom work to do. If we believe the kingdom's going to advance and be victorious and be triumphant in economics, in morality, in education, in politics, Councilman? Who's going to do it? Someone? No, I'm looking at you. Yeah. We need a councilman to stand up. We need civil rulers. We need parents. We need church leaders. We need people of God to do their work. These truths that I've given you should give us great hope and joy and confidence, but they should prompt us to action, is what I'm saying. You have work to do for the kingdom of God. You go, well, someday somebody's going to do something and all these promises are going to be fulfilled. You, Benjamin. You have work to do. I have work to do. Galatians 6.9 Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I think this verse is given to us to do our kingdom work. Mothers, if you are weary from carrying children in your womb and your body's being taxed and your hormones going crazy and you're exhausted and fatigued. Do not be weary in well-doing. Don't give up, for in due season you will reap. This is kingdom work. Parents, if you're weary of creating lesson plans, submitting your homeschooling paperwork, fighting with the superintendents, and doubt creeps in, Maybe we should just let the school do this. It's so hard. There's so much opposition. I can't keep up. Do not be weary in well-doing. Stay the course. You have kingdom work to do. In due season, you will reap if you do not give up. Saints of the church, if you're praying for family members, close friends, if you are laboring to help family members that are struggling with things and you feel like you just can't do it any longer, I think of our brother Jason. I think of so many of you that do this in so many ways. Don't be weary in well-doing. Don't give up. It's kingdom work. Young adults, hear me now, teens, 10, 12, 14, 18-year-olds, if you look around and you see your peers in the world going a different way, conforming to the world instead of conforming to Christ, and you feel this peer pressure, I shouldn't even say if, you do feel the peer pressure. You feel the tug to dress a little differently, to do different things, to allow different things into your mind, to allow your eyes to see things and your ears to see th- to hear things. Don't give in. It's wearying and you feel like, am I the only weirdo that's doing this? Why am I doing this? It's kingdom work to keep your heart and your mind and your bodies pure until the day that you are given to a godly spouse. Don't give up. Don't be weary in well-doing. If you don't give up in due season, you will reap, and you will reap a glorious harvest, young people. Parents who are having children grow older and you're seeking to marry your children well, this, moms and dads, this, those of you who aren't moms and dads, who are members of the church, this is kingdom work. Is there anything more important for us as parents than to help, help our children to marry well in the kingdom of God? Said another way, how disastrous are the results when we do not guide our children and when children don't take the guidance of their parents in marrying well? If that isn't kingdom work, I don't know what is. If the kingdom is going to grow, which it is, and thrive and prosper, we've got to have godly marriages. Amen. When John Knox died, he believed that the Reformation had failed. He believed the Reformation in Scotland had failed. He didn't live to see the fruit. But I want to encourage you, if you feel like, and you may not live to see the fruit of the work you're doing. I pray that you will. But some of the work you're doing, the fruit won't show up until five generations from now. But don't be weary in well-doing. If you faint not, if you don't give up, you will Reap a good harvest. By God's grace, you and I, you and I are being used to subdue his enemies and we await the glorious return of our King Jesus when this thousand years finally comes to an end. So here's the conclusions, takeaways. Don't be misled by looking short term. Look to the scriptures. Gradually but surely the church will grow and dominate the culture. Satan is not the prince of the earth. He has been bound to deceive the nations no longer. His power is limited. When all enemies, including death, are finally subdued, then Jesus will return. The final enemy to be subdued is death. And Christ's kingdom is advancing right now. And the work you and I do as faithful soldiers in His army, whether we see it or not, is part of that kingdom work. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father... There is much to say about this, and I wish I had hours to, to reference your word more and to recite the promises to remind us. But I pray that, Lord, this body would be encouraged by the things I've said. I pray that they would hear your word, that they would hear you speaking to them, saying, Do not be weary. Do not give up in this kingdom work. We have promises from you, Lord. That your kingdom is going to grow and thrive and prosper by the preaching of the gospel. That even the demons will be subject unto us in your name. That we will have victory. That you will have victory. And Lord, we do pray that you would hasten the day when Christ will come back and consummate all of this. Take his bride at the end of time. Then comes the end. Until that day, may we be faithful in doing what you have called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.